Alrighty, Wolf. This week, I would like to talk about improvements to Exco's testing infrastructure. Oh, okay. That's a timely topic. Well, by our standards. <laughs> is it? Well, I mean, it's within the last year. Is right. that basically timely? That, okay. Yeah, by a standard. I mean, I don't like this entire thing where we're doing topical topics. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Some, sometimes we can't help ourselves. Okay. So the old framework that Xcode used for its automated testing functionality was OC unit, mm-hmm. which you, if, if you don't know that name, that's the send test case classes and all of mm-hmm. its related classes that was in fact acquired somehow or, or, you know, used with permission from a company called Sente. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that wrong. They were an old next shop, I believe. Mm-hmm. That had this functionality, and, and other people were using it and bringing it into Xcode. Apple just said, "Okay, fine, we'll use it too." Actually, I have no idea exactly how that went down personally, but it was long enough ago that it was a little weird that they did that. Apple didn't necessarily, actually, they still don't really do that very much. Mm-hmm. So they used that for years and years and years. It did work okay, but then as Xcode changed, and in particular when Xcode became something that you could move to various places, that changed like some of the path issues when you got the different kinds of paths that applications used that you had to keep adding little hacks in to make the test continue to work. It was pretty obvious that Apple was letting it lie fallow and Mm -hmm. not doing that much with it. And then in the Xcode 5 era, they introduced this new framework called XCTest that we talked about a little bit in episode 64, slobbering over Xcode 5 auto layout, a very dignified title right there. And that was in October of 2013, so that was uh, sometime after. That was when we were talking about Xcode 5 coming out. And so they introduced a new framework, but as we discussed there, I won't go into too much detail, they actually said, hey, here's this new brand new framework, you should adopt it, and it doesn't do anything new. (laughs) But please go ahead and adopt it. Mm -hmm. And so we did, I did. So and that's about the 24-minute mark inside that episode, which is mostly about other stuff in Xcode that we talk about testing. Now, while they didn't do anything much with the framework, they did improve the UI in Xcode 5. They added a new test navigator. I believe, I don't believe that was in Xcode 4. Maybe it was. But in any case, it was, it was pretty neat whenever exactly they, they uh, introduced it. That allowed you to run tests individually instead of just running the whole test. Oh, right, thing. right. I really like that feature, yeah. And it was also, I mean, it looked a little different. It, it had its own kind of tree structure, which I really liked. It dedicated UI for it. Now, it was still pretty obvious it was built on the existing functionality, but it, but it was nice. And so you could run individual tests from there, but you could also just see, you know, pass or fail. Mm. And they also introduced something we didn't talk about in that other episode, which I've never actually used myself, but which I think is a good idea, the test action in Xcode Build. So you could run tests from the command line, from your own mm. mm-hmm. uh, automated, your own way of, of, of running this stuff, instead of having to open Xcode itself. And let's see, there are, now there are further changes in Xcode 6, and I'm getting some of this data from, uh, um, what is it, WWDC session 414, testing in Xcode 6, mm-hmm. which, which I'll put a link to in the show notes. And so here they added some new features to the framework and also added even more UI features, capabilities, or at least changes to it, improvements. I'll, I'll figure out the right word eventually. So previously, what you could do when you wanted to see the error that the test had is you could either look at a sort of a little tiny fragment of it in the issues navigator. And I've, I've talked in the past about how I don't really like the fact that they crammed a lot of stuff into the navigator. Right. 
area when you need more space for it. To see the full details for a log message, you need to go to the log navigator and, and kind of find it that way. In Xcode 5, these test logs looked like all other logs, especially they looked like build logs. So there was nothing special there to help you dive into what was unique about a test. On the other hand, it was kind of nice because you could at least disclose all the ugly, generic-looking text for your own uh, usage there. And, and I did that a lot to, to get the exact te text that my test had used when it failed. Now, in Xcode 6, they, they still have this, but there's, they, they still have the ability to look at tests in the, in the log navigator, but they look different, or at least they can look different. Have you have you seen this wolf? Um, I think so. Yeah. 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 So they now each each test kind of has its own entry that you can disclose mm -hmm. um, sub entries about it, which tell you what platform the test was run on. You can uh, go specifically to the test implementation from that thing from from that entry, and you can filter by new things. You can filter by pass fail and and by performance. Now, I I believe the reason they probably updated the UI look and feel was for the sake of the performance features that were added in Xcode 6. But in any case, it, it, there's some nice things about it. I think, I think it looks a lot nicer. It, it gives you the sense that you're looking at tests. On the other hand, before in the log, in the thing that was more closely like a generic log, you could disclose a bunch of tests at once and then look at a lot of text all in one, in one motion. The nice thing here is, while they gave you the nicer looking UI that's sort of test specific, that's actually only one of the two tabs in the log detail pane for a test run. You can actually go back to the log version of that. Mm. So I, I like it when they do that. I like it when, they, when they, they give in a little bit to developers wanting to have some custom ability. Mm. Custom ability? Uh, so, so that's good. Now the two things that, the two APIs that they added that are the most important are asynchronous testing and performance testing. Have you used either of these, Wolf? Yeah, I, I definitely use the asynchronous one. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Yes, it, and that would be the same for me, although actually I've really only played around a little bit with the asynchronous testing. Mm -hmm. I really like the idea of it. I have not actually played around with performance testing, so I'll mostly be going by the, the documentation there. Mm -hmm. For asynchronous testing, basically what they're doing, what they're letting you do in much less code and in a more standardized way is running your own run loop while your code runs basically in the background. Mm -hmm. And you used to have to basically add your own little loop, your little manual loop to run the, the run loop. Mm -hmm. This would be for things like uh, running things on a separate thread or running things that, that, that go off on a timer, for example. All the things that basically require you to have a, a run loop uh, for, for your stuff to work. Because you can't just rely on the other. You can't just kind of deadlock on the main thread. Not deadlock, but, but uh, a freeze on the main thread while something goes right. in the background. This is... You know, this is more Cocoa-specific kind of uh, asynchronous functionality. So it's very simple. You make what's called an XE test expectation instance. Mm -hmm. It's a new class with the expectation with description uh, factory method. I'm actually curious. I haven't looked at Swift. I know Swift seems to really, really want to deprecate factory methods. So I wonder if that's just an init method mm -hmm. for um, in Swift. Uh, but anyway, you make it, you give it sort of a... a, a user readable, uh, useful to you text description that will come back and be shown if there's an error message. And then you say, wait for expectations with timeout uh, handler. 
And this says basically run, you know, run your run loop and stop and don't go further in the in the code that's there. And so the idea being that you you call that once you know that all the rest of your stuff has has started. And so what you do, you know, I think um, the example they did in the session was like a parser. Uh, you might also say, you know, loading a file and, and setting up a file, loading an image, doing something with that image processing and the background. In that method that actually does the work, that's off the main thread and it's probably like a block or something if you're doing something that, that is actually all in that one method. When you're done with the work, you have a reference to that expectation and you call fulfill on it. And once you do that, that's the, the trigger so that the event loop comes out. Now, the, all that means is that the rest of the code gets to run. You want to put your asserts in your code as normal or in your, in your uh, testing as normal to do that. So what you want is kind of your, you, you probably maybe want your own kind of callback to see that the asynchronous code calls your test back, your test verifies the results, and then it calls fulfill. And again, all that means is that, is that now you'll go on to your next test or your next piece of logic in that, in that test method. And so it's, it's simple it's probably easier for you to actually learn than the time it took me to, to mention it. <laughs> but it's nice. It's nice when it's simple because that means you don't have a lot of extra boilerplate code to do this stuff. Uh, and then maybe you, know, maybe you do it a little differently each time or you do it one way and somebody else does it another way in the code base that you're, that you're maintaining. So again, I've only used it in, in little tests. I, I know that it works now. I guess, Wolf, you know a little more and you can talk about that in, in a second. But uh, I'm in favor. Mm-hmm. Now, the second thing is the performance testing. And that, instead of being a separate class, is a method inside of the XE test case class, the, sort of the workhorse class you use for your, for your test subclassing. Uh, and again, XE test case is the new version of the send test case class. Actually, not really much change about it. And so it's also really simple. You call measure block and you, add a, you uh, pass in a block. And then what it does is it runs that block 10 times and then gives you uh, an average of the results of each of those runs. So if you've actually got something that's relatively, you know, that actually takes a while, then 10 times can actually wind up multiplying that enough that you can't just, you know, it's not just going to finish in the, in the, at the drop of a hat. And also I do believe that in the, in the headers and the source, in the, uh, the comments for that method, it doesn't actually say that it runs 10 times. Maybe Apple is hedging their bets. Maybe eventually they'll run it. No, they can't really change it now because if you've got code that relies on this, no, actually that's not true. They could run it as many times as they want because they're just using an average of it. Mm-hmm. So maybe they'll change that in the future. I don't know. But they did say in the in the session that it's 10 times. And that's good because if you just run it once, then there could be setup stuff that's going on that you don't necessarily want to, uh, to be used as the only measurement of, of your code. So I like that. Now, they also, another thing I like is they use your scheme's profile settings instead of your debug settings for this. So they will actually run, they will actually build your app for release to do this, which is good. Now, you can profile individual tests in the same way that you run individual tests by clicking in the little, the little symbol in the gutter where your, your method implementation starts. Because it can do more than one thing, you right-click on it instead of just clicking on it. You right-click and then it shows you a... Uh, what do you call it? A um, a little sub menu mm-hmm. 
with you know run as the first thing and then uh, profile as the second. Now what they in order in order for them to be able to say, well, this is good, they need what's called a baseline value. Mm-hmm. So you need to you need to set it looks like you need to set it individually for each test. You right click on the beginning of the call to measure block. Actually I guess the call to measure block. And that will also bring up sort of a little contextual menu thing, which gives you some UI widgets to to accept the current baseline, the latest baseline, excuse me, the latest average as the baseline. It doesn't give you UI to say, well, I want to go back through and actually choose the, the one three runs ago, unfortunately. So you do have to kind of capture the one you want and then set the baseline right away mm-hmm. if you want to do it through the UI. Now, what they also said in the session was that the baselines are stored in source. And so, Wolf, have you, have you seen this? Uh, you mean where, like, where it actually it's stored? Where in the source, yeah. No, actually, I didn't. It's actually quite interesting. So I did try it out. Just made a little uh-huh. simple sample thing. And they put it in your project uh, package mm-hmm. inside of a folder called XC Shared Data, which I think oh, is the one sense, that gets yeah. shared for it's, – it's not the private one to your right. user account. Mm-hmm. That's where shared schemes are stored too, right? Uh, I believe so. Mm-hmm. And then XC Baselines is another folder that they put inside of that. And then inside of that – there's a an, an .exe baseline package file nice. with what looks like a, a, a UUID mm-hmm. of some sort. Mm-hmm. So it, you, know, you don't know exactly what, what it is, but it's, okay, it's there. And then inside of that is a plist that also seems to have the name of a UUID. I see Apple's gained the uh, Java package <laughs> namespacing Russian Dolph uh, <laughs> philosophy there. But inside that, well, actually, inside that plist, the text inside the PWS is actually much more understandable mm-hmm. in that they do, as far as I can see, there are, there's a, you know, a, a dictionary of the test names and the test names are the, you know, the class, which concludes the tests. And inside of that, there's the, the method names of the tests. And then inside of that is the information that you want to set the, the baseline. There's some other stuff like the um, standard deviation that's acceptable, things mm-hmm. like that. So I would say that it's, it's kind of nice. You make the first one of these, and then you could probably set more data in a more automated or at least uh, uh, t- fasting, you know, faster with you just typing it mm-hmm. by just editing this file directly. Mm-hmm. Um, because it isn't inside of it, there are not also UUIDs. There's, there's things which, which are understandable and, and things that you can figure out. So that's, it's nice. It's nice when they do allow you that. And it's true that you can check this in. I actually think that, for anyone who's not who hasn't used this feature, they would look at these weirdly named files inside of files inside of files and be like, "What the heck is this?" Right? So I'm not sure. It does keep it there, and that's good. I'm not sure if this is how I would have done it. <laughs> so, um, but you know, it, it 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 when you come right down to it, I would say this is definitely acceptable way for them to do it. It is something you can check in. It is something you can edit. So, so I like it. Mm-hmm. And let's see. Yeah, I think that's pretty much it. Okay. Oh, the, the last thing was that the, the docs say your test will fail until a baseline is set if you have this measure block in there. Mm. I have found that's not the case. Oh. Um, it just it just it says it succeeded, un, you know, unless you do set a baseline and then it fails the baseline. It fails the standard deviation of the baseline. Uh, so I'm not quite sure what's up with that. Maybe I'm not doing it quite right, but or maybe their docs are wrong. Mm-hmm. But overall, thumbs up. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've been asking for async. Oh, you know, back in yeah. X three. Xcode three land. I was uh, still. I was bemoaning that like unit testing really wasn't built in, um, and I and as soon as it got built in, I was bemoaning how async wasn't built in, uh, especially as Apple's <laughs> APIs are are getting yes. more and more async. Uh-huh. Uh, so yeah, I was very. I felt it was long overdue when um, the asynchronous support came out, and I was uh, and I agree with you. I, I thought the APIs were pretty straightforward. Uh, I I also was impressed with the performance APIs, even though I haven't used them in Anger yet. Um, it's it seems like you know a pretty straightforward way to have it all integrated, and and except for the weird Russian doll thing, it's you know it's it seems very very nice. Um, one thing I will mention, I saw that Cedric Luthi had this tweet this, and uh, I think I ran into this myself. That one thing that may not be obvious with these async APIs, and he, there's a Stack Overflow posting on this that I'll uh, link to. Is that how do you, uh, that if you if your uh, test takes too long to run, that it's you'll end up getting a runtime error. That not that, not your test, but you know that um, it's a you need to avoid calling the fulfill method uh, after the wait context has ended. And so the idea here is that uh, if your something has has executed correctly, uh, but it took too long. Um, then you shouldn't call fulfill. Ah, okay. Mm-hmm. And so it uh, that's the, kind of annoying. Yeah, the the Stack Overflow posting gives a you know kind of a a, a, a big workaround here and a lot of code to work around with. The it turns out to be actually pretty simple. Is that if you thus uh, declare your test text uh, sorry wow test expectation as weak underscore underscore weak that um, if it's not clearly documented but it will be released when the timeout expires. So you end up calling, you know, thanks to our friend, Neil Messaging, uh, it'll be released out from underneath you, and uh, you end up messaging Neil, Neil, and nothing bad will happen. So that's, so in general, your test expectations ah. should be uh, should be marked as underscore, underscore weak. Very nice. Yeah, nice, nice workaround. Yeah. Um, yeah, so okay, I'll get this, uh, go on to my topic now, which is a bit of a, a bit of a crisis of faith. Um so in episode 108, playing Django with Microsoft Word, I mentioned how Node is basically my server-side weapon of choice these days. And it's kind of weird because, um, you know, Node is JavaScript, and JavaScript is very much a not-a-beloved language. And uh, it, if I would say it's, it probably even has more hatred than Objective-C has leveled at it, and <laughs> probably with good cause. And yet here I am, I'm programming in it. And with server-side, um, you pretty much get to choose the, your, the language that you want to run. Uh, so there's, it's not like with like iPhone apps, you know, you pretty much have to be Objective-C and uh, pretty much on the Mac too. Yep. And so, it's, so I have no excuse. I can't say, oh, that, that dastardly platform vendor is forcing me to code in JavaScript. It's a terrible language. And it, even worse than that is that... Um, you know, I've I'm I'm a language buff that I've gone. I attend uh, Alex Payne's Emerging Languages Camp, and I you know read up on the latest, all that. And in general, I'm very interested in lingual advancement. And so, who am I? Kind of like you know, in the gutter with JavaScript. Um, it, it doesn't make sense. And partially, it, it has to do with I have this kind of uh, this crisis of faith thing going on where. 
when Swift came out, a lot of people said that, oh, look, this is exactly what what you wanted. You wanted a better language. And Swift, in very many ways, is a much better language. Yep. And it's it, – but I'm having – I also have this other – other thing that's pressing on me that I, I've come to realize that actually might even be more important to me than um, lingual advancement, which is kind of um, – it's composability. And it's when, mostly, mostly when we talk about composability, we talk about like how to compose either tools like Unix tools or, how to, or having classes interact with each other. And how they're designed to do that. Maybe applications with, with inter-application scripting and stuff like that. But it's for me. It's I almost want. I, I feel that our industry hasn't reached the point where we don't have an adequate lowest common denominator. Uh, pretty much C is our lowest con de- common denominator, and that has obviously it's untenable. It's it's a terrible language that we we need to stop using as soon as possible. And so I was actually when Java came out, I didn't really jump into it in. Uh, initially, but as it, it got uh, more and more like server side got picked up on it, that actually uh, got my attention a lot because it was a lowest common denominator. It wasn't good, but it wasn't nearly as bad as C. And <laughs> and you know, and if you look at like how you know, the the history of the language project there with Oak, it's like it, it was kind of you know it's it was kind of with this idea of a language that they they file off all the sharp edges for you. And it's like hard to make things wrong in Java, and uh, and it's kind of a, a fool's errand there. That it's uh, obviously it's uh, programmers are very very inventive for doing things incorrectly, and so that's it's pretty much impossible. But uh, I really appreciate that, and as I really liked the kind of the idea of having these compile time modules, the jar files that were also platform independent, and so a lot of sure. those things like ran like. You know, Brad Cox. It would talk about the black box of software ICs, right? The software integrated components that they can talk to each other, and we can. And uh, Java felt to me that way. It was dumb. It was simple. Everyone could get on board with it. And not only that, in terms of source, also the also the binaries you could ship to people if you didn't want to expose your source, and and it would run on everything, right? And that. That struck to, struck me as a pretty nice uh, uh, a pretty nice ideal, not a utopia because well, obviously right, we'd be right having once, this, yeah yeah right once debug everywhere. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it really is a separate issue, right? Um, yeah. When we talk about like uh, that's the standard knock against Java, and it's I view that as a separate issue. If you look at something like uh, a date parser, right? And this is like something that we all have to write. We all have standard code to do with taking strings and turning them into date components and doing date components to strings and stuff like that. Uh, we have ICU, right? The inter, uh, International Something Consortium Unicode for a, uh, for dealing with this type of stuff. And this is, I mean, unfortunately, that stuff is in C. And that's and like as I mentioned, like this is something we really need to get past. And so we we we. Java had this like super ideal when you write your apps in Swing and and your UIs will be swapped in and it will just look native on all platforms and uh, eh, you know that obviously doesn't work. But at a much lower level, uh, these very functional components could be actually defined with simple classes that even lowest common denominators uh, programmers could deal with, um, and you could even ship them in binary form. And it's 
so at, at that point, it doesn't matter if you have the if you you don't need a platform na- native date parser, right? Is that this is a code that we all have to write all the time, and we have every platform and every language has its own combination, and we all have to rewrite the stuff again and again and again and again. And so that's why it's you know I should be much more excited about um, Swift and Rust and other em- emerging languages, but I. For me, it's like I feel like we're trying to fly before it can walk. It's it feels like we don't have you know with basically with the fall of Java, with the fall of Sun, um, now it's owned by Oracle, and no one's interested in that stuff anymore. Uh, closest stuff we're seeing is like maybe people are interested in transpiling to JavaScript, or maybe uh, using LLVM um, to deal with multiple languages, but that doesn't solve the, the kind of the the language issues that I was in, interested in. And so it's, I think that I'm more interested in how do we build something essentially Unix, um, the next generation, which is something that ideally wouldn't be terrible like Unix is, but something where we all can get on board, um, that where I can build something that you can use, and we're not, it's not going to be obsolete in five or ten years, that, this is, that it's something that we all can share, and we can actually start, you know, building on our building blocks instead of us knocking them down with each new platform and language revision. Um, and like I said, the closest thing we we've come come to that is maybe Java. Um, but but now that that's dead, it's like man, we're just we're just nowhere there. And with um, like you look at the cool language features of Swift, and you know you can use take advantage of Objective C from Swift pretty easily, but going the other way is, you know, you basically have to use the lowest common de- denominator version of Swift if you want to be able to leverage Swift code from Objective C. And this is this uh, you're basically losing most of the advantages of Swift at that point, which is pretty much the definition of lowest common denominator. And it's it feels like that we that I just want something that everyone can agree on for a change instead of us trying to advance something. And um, and basically having this Tower of Babel thing going on, and so that's that's my crisis of faith. I feel like it's hard to get excited about these new language features when no one else can talk to my code who takes advantage of them. So there we go. That's your uh, so no solutions, just just a crisis. The, yeah, I mean that's kind of goes mm-hmm. well with our show, right? Well, it's interesting, right? Because Objective C was supported in GCC. For I mean, I'm assuming it still is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in theory, other people could use Objective-C for their platform code, for, for their cross-platform code if they really wanted to. Mm-hmm. And of course, there was, what was that, GNU step? Yeah. Was people's... Uh, but it seems like, like almost any other language, languages come with context. They come with culture. Mm-hmm. And so you have multiple cultures. No one is really has much of an incentive to say, well, I'm in Germany, but in order to come up with a global language, I'll stay in Germany and, and, you know, leave with my Lederhosen or whatever, (laughs) but I'll learn French because that way I'll be doing a solid for everyone by having a language now that we can all do. Well, there's no incentive for for them Mm -hmm. to do that. No, I've got our own language. It's got its warts, but, Mm -hmm. um, and the word word is probably seven syllables long, but, there, okay, I'll stop. I, I kid because I love, but um, 
you know, they're not going to learn French unless there's an incentive for them to do so. And I can't think, you know, Swift is going to be nice, but it isn't going to be so nice. It's not a killer language, I guess, in the same way, you know, killer feature, killer app that other people have to adopt because it's so much better than what they have. The other cultures out there are coming up with their own versions of of next generation languages, which, you know, like Swift will have their, uh, what do you call it? Their, um, you know, their, their com- compromises with, you know, the reality of, of the platforms that they're on, but also will advance in certain ways. And of course they'll advance in different ways because different people made them. It's, you know, it's a, it's a hard problem, but I'm not surprised that it exists. I mean, Java, you know, Java was too slow for a lot of, you know, the Java, had, you know, the, the, the trouble with Java was that it was, it was slow. It slow everywhere instead of just, you know, slow in one place. So, I mean, I guess that was an advantage, but then, then it's, you know, it's just a hard thing for somebody to say, well, I'll adopt it so that I, so that you can understand what I'm doing. Well, I don't need you to understand what I'm doing. I just mm-hmm. want to do my thing. So maybe it's just that I am, uh, I see the world as less full of people who, want, you know, sort of global computer language peace, right? They, they're not looking for the world. They're looking towards their own thing. Mm -hmm. And so trying to make everyone do it the same way is, well, what, what do you want out of everyone speaking the same language? What, what's, what are the benefits? That's the thing is like, I I don't necessarily really want, I, I don't want to say, okay, we all have to write in Java now. It's more that I wish, um, we had a common language and that we could easily then bolt stu- our, our custom languages on top of or interoperate v- with very well. And C is, C for, you know, ha- has the, um, I forget the, uh, the, like the open source packages that allow you to like bridge back and forth to C. And obviously Apple has their on again, off again, bridge support uh, framework. Um, it's it's not a great language for interoperating with other languages. The metadata simply isn't there, and so you have to mm-hmm. kind of you have to add that stuff. But uh, if if we just could have something that's a little bit higher level, and Java would would you know is a good example of this, and that we could be called from Objective C or Swift, um, then I think that would help a lot. And I'm actually kind of worried that JavaScript is going that way. That is becoming this. <laughs> yes. <laughs> But um, yeah, because wow, yeah, it, it's not really made for that either. I mean, it's not really made for anything. <laughs> but and that might be, you know, in the same way that HTML right. kind of won out by being this this total failure of a conceptual language, but it was just enough for everybody to use it for what they needed. And maybe maybe JavaScript, you know, because because it, uh, you know, I think on Accidental Tech Podcast they've talked about how. You know, so many companies are putting so much effort into making JavaScript faster, mm-hmm. and the only reason they need to do that is because JavaScript is so god awful, but popular. So maybe it's like English. Maybe I mean, yeah, I yeah. was saying, you know, nobody wants to learn other languages and other countries in Europe aren't going to learn French, but a lot of them learn English not because, sorry, Americans, sorry, British people, not because English is so great. <laughs> it's just because the U.S. was in the right position to sort of have a. Have a Something of a worldwide dominance for a while. And yeah. yeah, maybe that's that's the thing. So, you know, you, you take the lingua franca that you can get and yeah, that's if that's JavaScript, well so so you do you'd be happier with JavaScript than with C? Uh, yeah, I mean definitely. I mean C is just really mm-hmm. unsafe and passes prime. 
Um, yeah. It reminds me uh, along the lines of what you're talking is when I was in Tokyo uh, for the first time at the beginning of this year, I noticed that the subway system obviously had Japanese in it describing things, and mm-hmm. uh, but also had English. And at first, I thought, you know, that's kind of weird that, you know, that basically American tourists kind of get basically preferred status over all of the other tourists that go to Japan. And but then I realized that essentially English is the lingua franca, that if you if you can't speak Japanese, maybe you can kind of get by in English. So it's not so much necessarily preferring American tourists, but um, but English is kind of like I man. I wish it were the lowest common denominator language because it is so terrible, right? Um, so, and I'm not really looking for like an Esperanto type thing, you know, this this intellectual pie in the sky language that no one ends up speaking at all. It's more I want to, uh, I think they call it a pigdin or something, where like, where they tend to be very minimalistic languages that maybe can't even express correctly past and future tenses. Or, or genders or something like that, but really minimalistic language. And if we, if we just could, <laughs> this sounds crazy, but if we just could build more of our more of our software in these languages that we could kind of um, agree on at a, a low level. Sure. And JavaScript is actually, you know, now that I mentioned JavaScript is kind of that way because JavaScript is pretty minimal in terms of its class structure and all, and, or lack of classes that it is, and was intended to be right. dynamically replaceable because uh, I didn't have t- in time to get everything right. I knew people would have to basically monkey patch it on the fly to extend it out to do anything of, of value. So, it, you know, it's, it's, I hate to say it, but it's coming around to JavaScript. I, sure, sure. <laughs> I feel really badly about this. I feel like I'm telling people I want JavaScript. Well, I'm wondering, I mean, is that us ending on a downer or ending on an upper? Oh, it's it's a downer. (laughs) Well, on that note, we'll see you next time.